0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I'm Conrad Chua, and today I'm in DC speaking with Chris Kinner. Chris is Senior Manager, International Contracting and Industrial Participation at Northrop Grumman Corporation. He primarily advises the corporation regarding international contracting matters, so everything from international bid strategies to offset and industrial participation concepts. Chris also develops tools and guidance resources for the corporation's contracting department, to better equip contracts professionals to successfully support international business acquisition and execution. Before joining Northrop Grumman, he was working at Raytheon, where, among other things, he worked on integrating a recently acquired subsidiary into Raytheon itself. Chris has an MBA from the University of Cambridge Judge Business School and a BA from the George Washington University. So, welcome, Chris.
1: Thank you.
0: Chris, reading your bio, I have to ask, what is Offset?
1: That's a really great question, and and thanks, Conrad, for having me on the podcast. I'm I'm glad we get to to meet again and and talk. Um, So Offset, my family and friends often ask that as well. Even though it's kind of a small part of of what I do, it's a really interesting part. So I'll give you sort of the more formal definition, and then I'll kind of explain it in layman's terms. So the formal definition, it's it's a condition of purchase which is imposed by a government that requires the contractor to provide economic benefits to that government's country, which go above and beyond the supply contracts requirements. So in other words, it's kind of a side agreement between contractors and governments, it's typically a separate and distinct agreement um, from the supply contract itself. So if a company says, all right, we're going to sell this government 10 airplanes, that's the supply contract. But then they might have a side contract called an offset contract, which requires that company to do other things besides deliver the aircraft. And the way these supply contracts, uh, or sorry, the way the offset contracts get written, um, they're written in a in a way where it's called an offset obligation, and it's typically um, it's an amount of kind of money, but it's more credits that the, that the contractor has to satisfy. And in order to satisfy that offset obligation, the contractor has to do projects. So so they could do one project, two projects, three projects, whatever the case may be. And each of those projects gets valued at a certain amount of offset credits. So the goal is um, that the contractor perform enough projects where they eventually liquidate the offset obligation from the offset contract. And what's neat about it is those projects may not be anything related to the airplanes or even to the aerospace and defense industry at all. So sometimes companies have even built schools in that government's country. So it can be really creative and fun. Uh, The offset rules differ by each country, which makes it also very challenging because you have to understand each country's offset rules. And it's it's a common practice in the global defense industry. I think we're actually one of the few industries... Um, if not the only industry where offsets are a legal practice. Um, so it's very well written out. There's lots of regulations. But it's a really fun and creative side of, of what I do.
0: So, Chris, do you actually get to um, think about what are some of these other kind of projects and uh, get them approved? Or do you just monitor uh, the execution?
1: So I've, do- I've done a little bit of both. Um, Offset kind of comes and goes depending on how much international business uh, our company has. So for some, uh, for some international deals we win, I'll actually help uh, create the projects. Uh, most of the time, I'm advising the sort of offset project managers on the rules and regulations about the offset. Um, I'll give advice on kind of the do's and don'ts, uh, maybe valuing the offset projects, because that gets really creative trying to actually value an offset project. So it's probably more on that end than actually developing and creating the projects, but I have done some of that as well.
0: So Chris, you've had a long career in the defense industry. Um, Was that something that you'd always wanted to do, or was it something that you'd stumbled on?
1: Yeah, it's kind of something I stumbled on. Um, This was my first job out of undergrad was with Raytheon, and uh, I was recruited into a rotational leadership program. Before that, I really didn't even know what the aerospace and defense industry was. You know, I had heard of Boeing, certainly. Probably I had heard of, like, Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman. Um, But Raytheon, I certainly hadn't heard of. The industry, I didn't know much about. But the interesting part was that the job description of that rotational program actually matched my skill set very well. Um, As far as I ran a small business for a year in college, so I had a small painting business, And which required me to do a lot of um, development because I actually had to go out and and get jobs, painting jobs. I had to write those contracts, and then I would have to subcontract out the actual painting. So I didn't do any of the painting myself. I was kind of the manager, um, so I subcontracted out the actual work. So that skill set actually matched the rotational leadership program very well, and that's really what drew me to the position. So I did that for... Well, I was with Raytheon for 10 years. I would say after about five years, though, I, I sort of questioned whether I wanted to be in the aerospace and defense industry, uh, probably partially because I, I hadn't been in, a, in another industry, so I really didn't know what else was out there. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I started exploring MBA programs is if I was potentially going to make a move to a different industry, I thought it'd probably be a good idea to actually get an MBA and then try to do the move. So actually, one of my goals going into the MBA program Uh, was to learn about other industries and other skill sets.
0: So Chris, you you mentioned about the MBA, so it's probably a good time to uh, talk about that. You left the U.S. to do a one-year MBA in Cambridge uh, in the U.K. and then returned to your previous employer. So did you notice any change in yourself when you came back to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So I actually had a very different perspective of business in general after completing the MBA. Uh, There's, you know, a few concepts that if you don't go through an MBA program or you didn't major like in finance, perhaps in undergrad that you just really aren't quite aware of. Um, So shareholder motivation and organizational structure and motivation are are two real business areas that um, I came out of the MBA program knowing much uh, a lot more about. Um, also, the importance of cash flow, the importance of stock price theory, all of that really drives what um, a publicly owned company uh, tries to do. And it's really interesting to to take those concepts and theories and and see how companies actually adapt to those, and then you can kind of better understand why a company runs the way the way it does. Uh, another part um, coming out of the MBA that I found really interesting is, uh, we talked a lot about culture in the Cambridge MBA, MBA program, which was great. Um, I didn't realize how, how much of a company culture really exists. Uh, and I really I really noticed that after switching uh, from my previous company to Northrop Grumman, you know, two companies in the same industry, but very different cultures. And I, I may not have recognized that had I not um, gone through those cultural experiences uh, during the MBA program. So another thing that came out of the MBA that uh, perhaps earlier or sooner than I would have is I, I was ready to lead. So I had some managerial assignments prior to the MBA, uh, but I think going through the program uh, really helped me to understand uh, more so how to lead, not, not necessarily as much how to manage, because I, I personally think those are kind of two different things. I know some people think they're, they're one and the same. I think they're related. But I really came out of the program with the desire to lead, to either lead a corporation or lead a department of a corporation in in a certain direction. Um, So that's definitely something I would not have otherwise gotten had I not done the MBA program. Uh, And then I also, you know, I can see a real difference now um, when I interact with people who do have an MBA or or another advanced degree and perhaps people that don't, and it's certainly not a knock on anybody who doesn't, but just the way uh, people talk and understand business acumen um, I now understand why people talk like that sometimes. So th- those, so, so those were probably the biggest things uh, that I noticed from a change within myself.
0: So Chris, you talked about how you know after five years you'd always been working in aerospace and you were thinking, that, you know, you, you did an MBA to sort of explore uh, other opportunities. Um, a lot of MBA candidates also go through that process. So during that one year, in a way, how did you balance this or, or go? Go along this with this idea of uh, exploring new opportunities and weighing that against the success that you've had in the aerospace industry, and of course, you know the continued success that you could have had, or and yet you've had, you know, if you went had gone back, and which you did.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question, and it, it's something I think about a lot. Um, as I sort of stated previously, w- one of the goals for me to go to an MBA program was to try to learn about different industries and different skill sets. Um, so that was actually. You know, probably one of my top three reasons for going to get an MBA. So while I was uh, doing the MBA program, I did have a couple of interesting opportunities um, that I looked at. But you know, in, in the end, uh, which perhaps is not what I was expecting going into the program, um, I realized that the aerospace and defense industry actually, for me, was a very good fit. Um, so just after interacting with people in other industries, learning about what they do, um, having some interviews with companies in other industries, it's just uh, the aerospace and defense industry seemed like a really good fit for my kind of personality. And actually completing the MBA program and having gone through um, that thought process actually provided me with new motivation to really go back to the aerospace and defense industry and try to really excel um, in that industry. So so the MBA really helped me to understand my sort of own internal motivations and, uh, you know. I'm confident that I made the right decision. Um, so, in, and in the end, you know, I did go back to my uh, to Raytheon after the program for a few months, but then I ended up finding even a, a better opportunity with Northrop Grumman um, in the same industry. So, that's also probably one thing the MBA provided me um, was that even staying in the same industry, I can do something a little different. Um, and advance a little quicker with the skills from the MBA program, but still stay in, in this industry. So, uh, sort of counterintuitive what I thought going into the program, but in the end, that's uh, that's what worked for me.
0: So, Chris, you've worked for two very large corporations, and it's it's very easy when you know one person is in a large corporation uh, for people to lose visibility of that per- you know that person. So, how have you? Whether it was Raytheon or Northrop Grumman, maintain control over your career.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. So I'm going to throw an acronym out. Um, I typically don't like acronyms, but actually, one of the things I remember from uh, the Cambridge MBA program um, was something along the lines of success. In order to have success, you have to have ability, motivation, and opportunity. And you know, after thinking about that, coming back to the to the industry. I just really think that's spot on. Um, so for me, to not lose visibility, I'll sort of talk about the three different areas that I just mentioned. So uh, ability. So you have to you have to work hard. Um, some people will advance without working hard for a little bit, but in the end, if you're not working hard, you're going to fizzle out at some point. Um, also making sure you're having the right training opportunities, whether it's on the job training, whether it's uh, going back to school or, or doing other industry training. Um, and then in the end, the last piece of the ability is, is you do have to perform. So uh, to be visible within a company, especially a large company, if you're not performing ahead of sort of the average employee, uh, you have a tendency to just sort of get lost in the company. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of one piece of it is the ability to, to maintain um, visibility in a company. And then you also have to have the motivation, um, not only have the motivation, but you have to show the motivation. So one thing that I have always tried to do is ask for the hard assignments that nobody else wanted to do. Um, also understanding which assignments are going to be strategic and visible within the company, um, get in front of leaders by doing uh, work on projects. Um, that's definitely been one thing where I've maintained the visibility. Uh, you know, you kind of have to make your own name and, and sort of your own brand, um, It's different in a small business because the small business may represent who you are in general or a small cohort of people running the business. In a large business, the company culture is really what comes out. So within the company, making uh, your own brand name is really important if you're going to continue to succeed. Um, Then also exceeding on expectations um, above the norm. So that shows the leaders that you're motivated. If you, if you work hard and you're, you're exceeding the expectations, um, they, they notice you. And then one thing I always find during sort of like the year-end performance review kind of cycle um, is very tough to get uh, criticism. So I often have to ask for more constructive criticism because during performance reviews, everybody likes to talk about what you've done well or, or your next steps, which is great. Um, but I always like to, to ask for that constructive criticism, um, one, because I want to do better. It, but two, it also shows that I'm motivated to get better. And I think the leaders uh, recognize that. And then the last part um, of success, I think, is y- you do have to be given the opportunity to succeed. So there's there's a couple ways um, I've gone about doing that. Uh, first and foremost is building an internal network network. Um, even outside of your department or, or your management group, it's just really important to interact on a daily basis with people doing things um, that you're not doing within the company. And you, and you get to learn from them as well. Also, finding advocates is, is extremely important. And I, I've sort of approached this uh, strategically as much as possible. So I, I try to forecast who I think the future leaders are going to be. So on, on one hand, you know, the current vice president of a department, uh, becoming your advocate, that's great. And, and that's you know something you should strive to do. But if they retire next year, you may have spent all that time trying to, to, to get that person to be your advocate when really you should have been trying to get the advocate of the people who you think might become the vice president after that person retires. So building that advocacy, not only from that current vice president, but also down a couple layers, I think has really helped because when those people move up, they pull that, they pull you with them. So I find that um, to maintain that visibility and to succeed at a faster rate than perhaps some of my peers is really because of that advanced network um, and forecasting who I think those future leaders might be. Also having like a three to five year plan so, sort of sounds cliche, but it's something that I've done throughout my career and I make it uh, not only about work, but also about life. So I think having, having your career and life sort of on one sheet of paper and, and saying, okay, wh- where do I want to be in five years with my career, with my personal life? Where do I want to be living? Um, I, think, I think that that really helps. And then probably the biggest thing that I found that, that helps besides the advocacy is actually documenting your career aspirations within your performance review cycles. Because I find if you actually document what you want to do, and your leadership sees that, um, then when the year end comes around, Uh, you are more apt to be promoted and remain visible because you said at the beginning of the year, I want to do this, this, and this because I want to be here. Um, So that's documented on paper and it makes them really easy for them to to pull you up and promote you. And then uh, lastly, not as much anymore as it used to be, um, but but you need to be willing to not only rotate departments or, or job responsibilities, but also to relocate. Um, so that may be something different, like for, for me in a, in a large company rotations or, uh, I'm sorry, relocations may be, uh, more common than perhaps a small company. Um, but you have to be open to it because that's also how you're going to build your, um, advocacy base is going in different areas of the country, meeting different people. And then in the end, um, you kind of get to choose, uh, your, your career, uh, progression path. Um. So all that combined, uh, I, I would say the one thing that I always have to remember, and what I would advise people to remember, is you do own your own career. So no one is going to plan out your career for you. You may have advocates, you may have good managers, but in the end, you you own your career. So if you want something, you got to go for it.
0: That's great advice, Chris. Um, Switching gears a bit, I mean, you talk a lot about leadership, uh, and. One thing that I've seen is more US veterans, military veterans doing an MBA to make a career switch from the military to let's say the defense sector. So they bring with them a lot of leadership experience, but it's also a big transition for them moving from the military to a corporate career. Um, in your experience, what you know, advice would you ha- have for veterans who are trying to make that switch after an MBA?
1: I think it's a great idea. The the defense industry in general, we love our veterans. We actually go out of our way to hire veterans. So already someone coming out of the military wanting to get into the defense industry has a leg up. Um, We love our veterans. Now, with that said, they have probably spent the majority of their um, sort of adult life in a very structured, uh, you know, military-oriented environment. So I think stepping out of that environment for a year and immersing yourself in in a program like Cambridge, the MBA program, um, I think it's a great way for veterans to um, just sort of get away for a year, but also um, see how business works, um, not inside the military itself. So just getting to interact with other people at the MBA program, um, I I would absolutely advise veterans to consider an MBA and I also think, especially with a, a program like Cambridge um, that was very cross-industry oriented and very collaborative, I think it's a great place for veterans. Um, they, they don't have to worry as much if they don't have the, the business background like perhaps some other people in the program do because it's a very collaborative program and, and we help each other along. So not only do I think veterans would get a lot out of a Cambridge MBA, but I also think that they would contribute a lot. Um, to other people who who may have been in in finance or consulting, to to get perspectives of people who have a very different um, career thus far, and I think they could provide a lot during class discussion. So you know, in the end, I would absolutely advise veterans if they want to get into the defense industry, consider an MBA. Consider an MBA, and to be honest, a veteran with an MBA in the defense industry is going to move up really quickly because. Um, because we like to hire and promote our veterans an mba on top of that i mean you really can't get any better
0: so chris turning that around um you've obviously done quite a few managerial positions uh in your career so what do you look for when you hire someone
1: so one thing that i've come to realize is that most of the actual work that you do day to day you learn on the job so there there may be and maybe you know the defense industry might be might different than um, perhaps like an accounting industry where, where you do have certain skills that you do over and over and over. But so I, I try to look more towards somebody's personality and just general business acumen than trying to assess, okay, have they done these five tasks before? Because if they're if they're a good personality, good business acumen, and I think they'll fit the culture, they'll pick up the work that it always works out that way. It's all on the job training. So usually I can tell within a few minutes if somebody is is somebody I want to hire. Um, a few things I look for from a personality perspective, I like people that have shown creativity and have a good sense of humor. Um, you know, and it's someone you're going to be working with on a daily basis. So is this person someone I want to be around every day? Um, somebody that has my back because I'll have their back and has the team's back and also trustworthy. I think, um, I think trust is one of the most important things in an organization um, because as trust goes up, the speed of making decisions uh, goes up and your success goes up. So it's gotta be someone that I can feel like I can trust. From a business acumen perspective, I look for someone that I kind of see understands the big picture. Certainly someone with an MBA has a big picture, you know, something like that. Um, I like it when people challenge a status quo. Uh, but I'm also a little old school and it's probably because of the industry I'm in. Um, I like challenging the status quo and offering new ideas. Um, at the end of the day, though, someone does have the authority to make a decision and that's the decision we're going to go with. So I want someone that is okay if they offer a great idea, but uh, the corporation decides to go in a different direction, they're okay with that because we'll, you know, we'll explain why we decided that. Um, so I don't want someone that if they don't, get their ideas implemented, every time is going to get too frustrated. Also, I look for people who have the skills that perhaps I don't have or perhaps my team doesn't have. So it's sort of the classic one plus one equals three, right? So if you build a a team and everybody has the same skills, um, you may not be getting a multiplier out of that team. But if you're able to bring in people with slightly different skill sets you're, you're going to get the multiplication out of that team and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a great team and then one other thing and this is probably me being a little old school again and, and maybe perhaps in, in the industry I'm in um, I look for someone that has shown loyalty at some point in the past so I realize the first couple years after an undergraduate degree people may hop around a little bit they don't really know what they want to do yet and that's fine but if I'm looking at someone who is trying to come in at like a managerial level and they've had you know, five jobs in three years. That's not something I personally find attractive. Um, you know, I want someone who certainly not expecting people to be committed for 10 or 15 years all the time, but someone that's going to be there for three, four or five years and really put, put in the work, be in an industry that's really interesting. Um, so, so having some sort of loyalty is very important to me. And then the last thing I kind of look for is work life balance. So I want people who work smart, not, not necessarily that work long hours. So I don't want someone that, that has to work for 60 hours a week to get the job done because they're going to burn out. Um, they're, they're probably trying to multitask too much. So, so that's really important for me. You know I don't expect people to work much more than 40 hours a week. It's, it's a full-time job. You shouldn't have to work too much more than that to get the job done. Certainly there's peaks and valleys, but I'm generalizing. And also just work life balance in general. So I don't expect, nor do I want emails at 10 o'clock at night. Um, certainly I work in an international environment, so the time zones will sometimes affect that. You may have a meeting, uh, late at night or early in the morning, but for people that work, work with me in the same time zones, um, when you're home, you're home, you know, don't be checking your BlackBerry. The work will get done tomorrow. Um, But at the same time, if they're at work, I I want them to focus on work. So it may just be my personality, but I'm very, um, I sort of really try to divide my work life from my personal life. That's probably different if someone's running their own business or in a small business where the business and their life may sort of get blended. Um, But when I'm in an industry like I am, um, I try not to let affect my personal life. So when I'm home, I don't check the BlackBerry, I'm home. Um, and, and I want employees that do the same thing,
0: Chris. That's that's incredible because um, most of the times I hear work-life balance being cited by employees who say they they want to see that in a company, and you know that's one of the first times I've heard uh, a recruiting person say that's what they look for in an employee. So that that's great to hear, um, Chris. That's been fascinating the last couple of minutes. You know, hearing your career, but also listening to your advice about how to. Uh, manage someone's career, so I hope people take that advice. Think about you know their ability, the motivation, seeking out the opportunities, finding the advocates for themselves, and uh, I wish you all the best, Chris. Uh, thanks thank very, you much. very much.
1: Yeah, thanks, Conrad.